Homer's the Iliad, he tells the story of the Trojan War, where King Menelaus was so upset at the loss of his love, Helen of Troy, stolen by Paris, that he launched a thousand warships and created a war. Today we're going to be talking about a different war, a war between one man and an entire country's police force. And why did he wage that war? Because he had a love too, except his love was crime. This is I Can Steal That. everybody welcome to another episode of i can steal that i'm your host pete stegmeyer today we are going to be talking about maybe the greatest irish criminal to ever live uh would be a good way just a man that absolutely loved crime uh he uh, was martin cahill known as the general and i am joined today by a very special guest uh one of my best friends in the world we've been friends for over a decade at this point uh, he is also the host of the amazing Adventures in Advising podcast and Broncos Europe podcast. Uh, so our guest today is Colm Cronin. How's it going, Colm? Pretty good, Pete. Thanks for t- giving me the opportunity to come on. And uh, we have a fascinating individual to talk about today. Martin Cahill is infamous uh, across Ireland. And even though he has been an expired individual, for you know coming up uh, on uh, 20 years he his memory lives on in dublin so uh, it, it's going to be one for for the ages i think for for this podcast today for us to talk about i'm, I'm very excited and i'm super happy to have an authentic uh, irish accent because otherwise i would lose all of our irish listeners by trying to do a terrible one <laughs> There's uh, I think I think where where Hollywood falls down on on Irish accents is there is no one generic Irish accent. There's no big swathe. I mean, basically, you get into a car in Ireland, right? And you drive for ten minutes, and it's a different accent. So it's not like there's a, a, a midwestern um, twang or uh, <laughs> something like that that you can. No, there 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 is just there's so many different accents. That's that's fair. That's one thing that I've noticed about uh, Ireland, and I absolutely love it because like it forces you to be a good listener when people are talking because you you have no idea if you're going to understand what they're saying. And we love storytelling. You do love, and you're good at it. Like you're really good at it. So it's I love it. Uh, when all this craziness is done, I'm definitely uh, coming back with uh, with my wife. So it'll be a good time. Definitely. All right, so let's start with let's start basically with his his birth and things like that. Uh, Martin Cahill or Cahill uh, was born in the slums of Dublin's inner north city, um, which is the north city just north of the Liffey. Yeah, that would be exactly Dublin's divided north and south by the River Liffey. So this would have been the the north inner city, which would have been a very deprived area certainly at that time. Okay. Okay. Um, so he was born in uh, in that environment, uh, May twenty third, nineteen forty nine. Uh, he was the second of twelve surviving siblings. So I don't even know how many like they they originally had. Uh, and his parents were very poor. Uh, his father was a lighthouse keeper, 
and his mother, well, had 12 kids. So that was, that was her job and she was working hard every single day. Uh, so Martin and his uh, siblings began stealing as children, like, like four or five year olds, uh, to feed the family and kind of supplement their, their dad's income. Uh, and then in 1960, the family was moved by the government as part of a slum clearance effort. So it was like, that's how bad it was. Yeah, they they did that um, in the 60s. So Ireland um, is is an interesting country, right? Because on the island, we have structures that predate the pyramids. But as a nation state, we're not even 100 years old. So it's an interesting dichotomy. And we, we really were a country where there was a lot of poverty, a lot of deprivation. And it's only in the 60s that you really begin to see that being addressed. And it wasn't always addressed in the best way. But And one of the things they did was they, they closed these what were referred to as tenement buildings. But they, they moved the people or they wanted to move the people out into the suburbs. But to just drop them there with no um, opportunity. Like Ireland is, is not America. So people these people didn't have access to cars. So they would have been reliant on public transport. And that only existed within the city. And so they put people out. They had no access to public transport. They had no they lost their friends. Um, it, it was it was pretty horrific way of, of doing it all in the name of progress and certainly there were plenty of people at the time who resisted or, or who weren't too happy about what was going on oh definitely definitely it doesn't doesn't sound like it was easy and like even when when they moved like they ended up going to a christian brother school that was on the same road as their new house but like martin and his brothers just constantly skipped school to commit robberies and um, yeah and Okay. They, the, those, those Christian brother schools um, were pretty, pretty notorious in in Ireland. Certainly, um, for for the the beatings that um, the brothers used to um, meet out to the children for even the most minor of infractions. I I believe it, and like things got things got so bad for Martin uh, that at the age of fifteen he like tried to join the Royal Navy. And the Navy was like, well, you're 15. Uh, what are you going to do for us? And he like, and this is my, maybe my favorite thing. He offered, uh, he's like, well, I'm really good at breaking into houses. So could I do that for you guys? Like, I've already got a record. And the Navy's just like, no. But like that, I just think is like really fun because it shows that his first love was the C. But that C stands for crime. <laughs> uh, the perfect joke. I thank you. I worked too hard on that one, but I I do admire that he like recognized his strengths. Like even as a kid, he's like, well, I could. Is is piracy a thing? Because I could do that. He would have been. He would have been a great pirate. He would have been an amazing know? pirate. And he actually like he ended up uh, getting a pirate-ish nickname. He was called the General and the Godfather of Irish Crime. But usually the General is the nickname that sticks with him. Uh, and this was actually like two parts. Like one part because his. Like, his heist and his operations, he had insane precision. Like, everything was, like, planned down to, like, the last detail. And he was very meticulous and very, very thorough. But the Irish media took to calling him the general uh, basically to avoid the Irish libel laws. Because if they said his name, uh, he could sue them. But if they just used the nickname the general, everybody knew who they were talking about. And technically, they, they didn't say his name. So they were protected under the libel laws, which I... 
I just really like it. That feels very Irish to me. That that is that's true. Um, at that time, um, there were a lot of nicknames in use to to avoid Irish libel laws, which are some of the strictest and remain so to this day. So, at that time, alongside the the general in that era, you also had um, the monk and the the penguin. Uh, we're, we're, two, we're two of the others so it, it really was like a Batman episode in, in many ways that's amazing um, so shortly after his failed attempt at naval service uh, he was arrested for two burglaries at the age of 16 and sentenced to attend an industrial school which just sounds like child prison it was and those the history of, of those i mean they were they were camps for for kids they were awful and they you know many of those who were sent there were just subjected to systematic brutality to starvation to sexual abuse and um i mean Cahill himself famously said that if anyone corrupted me it was those mad monks down in the bog and he that was that was the the industrial school that he was referring to that to that was in county offaly which is in the midlands in ireland and and would be known for for its bogs so um he he definitely going to going to the industrial school i think combined with having been in a Christian brother's school was formative for him in, and, and in terms of the violence that he saw and that he experienced. So um, his education was, was pretty rough, I can tell you. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I've seen, uh, I believe it was one of, the, uh, one of the police officers that was investigating him that said that he got his like, primary education at that Christian brother's school, but his like, education in crime at, at this technical school or industrial school yeah. and that was like really what like solidified him like he said as well uh into a life of crime and so he gets out of uh he gets out of school and that's how you know too like he didn't graduate he got out of school uh <laughs> and he uh he met uh francis lawless and saw her last name and game recognizes game and married her almost immediately um and his, his love for Francis was surpassed only for his love of crime. And he and his brothers continued to rob rich homes and then started robbing police stations to steal confiscated guns. Yeah, and that's something that the they police weren't aware of. So this became a pattern for Martin. Martin, um, I suppose, never forgave the, the police because when he was sent to that industrial school in um, when he was 16, he had felt that the um, police had taken advantage of him and he kind of made it um, his mission to look to embarrass them at every turn. And I know that's something we'll talk a little bit more about. <laughs> when it came to stealing, he they went to a depot. And in Ireland, they, at that time, there was one depot where the police used to store all of the confiscated firearms right that they got from uh, any of the organized crime and Cal and his brother um, just kept going back and stealing and and the, the police in Ireland didn't realize until years later when they recovered some of the guns that they had uh, from Cahill and they they realized that they hang on these are supposed to be locked up in the depot <laughs> using their own weapons against them I mean wow yeah, he's uh, his his war with the police like becomes absolutely legendary, and it's one of the funniest things that I've ever 
like ever gotten to research on on this podcast. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But using all these stolen guns, it's not surprising um, that afterwards they uh, kind of graduated to armed robbery and started working with other notorious gangs like the Dunn Gang to start robbing armored trucks. And him and his brothers, uh, but Martin especially, got a reputation with police as just hardened criminals by the mid-70s. Yeah, certainly he had uh, he progressed at that point. He was beginning to, to hone his talents. And I think that's when you really begin to see the meticulous planning come into play. And he, he was certainly a meticulous planner. He really was. He put a lot of thought into it. But I, I think um, it was also maybe a, a little bit akin to winning a taller than Daddy DeVito contest when it came to <laughs> what, what some of the other criminals in Ireland were up to at the time. He really didn't have to try that hard to, to be the best. <laughs> oh, that's, that's really good. Um, and he, so he gets like this prominence with the police, and a few years later he really starts to get his prominence with the Irish people uh, and kind of turned into like, I, maybe folk hero status isn't the the right way, but like like a Robin Hood, because in like 1978, uh, the Dublin Corporation began to tear down several apartments and tenements in his old neighborhood, uh, and he took the battle to court to try to save his neighborhood and the buildings and the people there. And when that failed, uh, he actually staged a sit-in and camped on the site of the demolition for for weeks uh, and just like lived in this tent until the Lord Mayor of Dublin himself went to speak with him and like moved his uh, moved his housing to like a nicer area. Yeah, that was that was Martin kind of out and out. He was a really um, intriguing figure, right? Because on the one hand, he could be incapable of incredible cruelty and violence. And on the other side, for the local community and for his family, he was a man capable of incredible kindness. And so that was a, a real dichotomy that existed. And he, he wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't black or, or white. He, you know, he, there was an awful lot of shades of, of gray with, with Martin Cahill. But um, for, for people, they saw him, I suppose, you know, kind of championing their rights. And maybe especially at that time, they weren't aware of the violence that, he used the intimidation that he used as he was beginning to, to build his criminal empire. I think that's a really good point because everybody like sees him as, as like this Robin Hood kind of guy. And uh, I saw a lot of things when I was researching this about his generosity, but he also like, uh, like we'll, we'll get to this in a little bit, but like he also like did commit crimes against uh, pretty small time business owners, uh, yes. uh, like embarrassingly small time business owners. <laughs> Uh, and so this is kind of where he gets his notoriety. Uh, and then in the eighties, he like really hits a stride and his gang starts pulling off like their most impressive heists. So in 1983, he pulls a heist of around $2 million in gold and diamonds from a jeweler called O'Connor's Jewelers. Uh, and this ended up causing the jeweler to go out of business and over a hundred jobs ended up being lost because of this. But the way he did it was like insanely simple, and that's that's a pattern that you see like again and again with uh, with Martin Cahill's um, his heists is that they're just brilliantly simple in their execution. Um, and so what he did was he found a flaw in their security system where one of their boiler rooms 
was not hooked up to the security system. So he just broke into the boiler room and then like him and his gang like sat there overnight until the employees came in in the morning. And once they came in, they just walked out of the boiler room and stuck everybody up and made them open the vault and they left with $2 million worth of stuff. That's exactly it, Pete. I think nail on head there. He his plans were brilliant because they were so simple. He was able to use when he when he was planning a job. He he looked what 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 is the weakness? What what what's its strategic weakness? And that is exactly what he exploited. It wasn't always the that he went for something incredibly elaborate. He just was able to to find the you know the Achilles heel in all these security systems. And he was absolutely meticulous in going about exploiting that. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to get into his biggest heist now. Uh, and this one... Well, oh, go ahead. Before we probably get into that, um, just for, for listeners, um, that that job in 83 uh, where he nets $2 million, that probably was his uh, initial falling out with the IRA. And the... IRA kind of looked on in awe as he managed to, you know, net himself two million, and they thought, you know, we want in on some of this, and they were used to being able to extort people, and um, they they showed up and they kind of demanded uh, some of the spoils, and he rebuffed them. Martin Cal told them where to go, and he said, if you want uh, gold, then go out and get, rob your own like we did, and that was probably the first kind of. Uh, time that they had been rebuffed but he basically told them he was prepared to to go to war and at that time they were kind of engaged against um the you know in in a struggle up in the north so they didn't want to get into it um but i think for what's coming later it's important people know this is where the seeds were sown it was in the aftermath of the 83 robbery and in i mean it wasn't just like they, they kind of gave up initially. I mean, one of his um, gang members was actually abducted by the IRA from his house in 1984. And he was bundled into the back of the van. And he went to, he was taken to the, the Phoenix Park. But somebody saw and they called the, the Gardaí, who were the police in Ireland. And there was a shootout um, between the Gardaí and the gang. And in the midst of the chaos, the gang member from from um, Martin Cahill's gang was able to to escape, and um, they he, he he was able to I suppose bring that information as to who the the people had uh, been, and the Gardaí uh, were arrested a huge number of the IRA. So really, um, Cahill came out of that you know one upping the IRA, even though they thought they had got him when they grabbed his man, but it didn't turn out that way for, for them. But we'll see what happens a decade later. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the next the next big job is is the, the one he is most famous for. All right. So this one, uh, and thank you for that. Like the, the like historical background on all this is, is amazing. I'm so glad to have you here. Um, so this next one was his like simplest, Maybe, yeah, but definitely his biggest and most famous heist. And this is the Rustboro House heist. Uh, now, the Rustboro House was an enormous mansion uh, and is still listed in the record books right now as Ireland's longest house, uh, which I didn't know as a title. Um, but this place has it. And it, it's very, very old. It was uh, 
construction started on it in 1741, didn't get finished until 1755. And, uh, Throughout that time, like various like nobility lived in there. In 1951, it was purchased by Sir Alfred Byte. Uh, now Byte was uh, one of the heirs to the De Beers mining family, so he had like crazy South African blood diamond money, and he used this house to display his family's art collection, uh, which included uh, works by Goya, Gainsborough, and most famously, Lady writing a letter with her maid by Vermeer. Uh, which was worth $30 million alone. Uh, and he, he did offer this collection to be like shown to the public, so it was treated as a museum. So uh, Cahill planned this this heist for months. He's like, okay, this is this is what I want to go after. And he starts going to the exhibits in the in the Rustboro house like pretty much daily sometimes. Like for, for weeks though, he goes and he takes a note of every single painting and then he like goes and like researches like which paintings are probably worth the most money and which ones are famous. And he catalogs everything in, the, uh, in, in this museum. And he's also paying attention to the security systems. Uh, what were you going to say? I was just going to come in because listeners may be wondering how is this guy, you know, who's, who's kind of infamous in Ireland at this time, how is he doing the, the casing and why aren't people recognizing him? And I think what, what's important to point out here is, um, that Martin Cahill always, he covered his face. So even in the earlier years where he maybe had been arrested and he had to appear in court or during the protest, he always covered his face. So he wore a ski mask. He put his hand over his face. He wore a, a Mickey Mouse T-shirt over his face. Um, that was one of his favorites. Um, and so nobody knew what Martin Cahill looked like. So I, 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 when, when, if people are going, how is this guy going to this house, you know, repeatedly? He, no, nobody knew him. He just would have seemed like a visitor who was, you know, having a look around. Um, and Ireland in in 1986 was a, you know, not a not a place where, you know, there were very sophisticated CCTV. Uh, systems or, or anything like that so i don't it wouldn't have come across it i don't think to as suspicious to to anybody this was a world way before the internet so people did not know who this guy was that's true and he like my, i love watching the videos of him like walking around with his like hand covering his face because it's just like it's like a little kid watching like a scary movie his like fingers are apart so he can like see where he's walking and he's just like walking around like that like so if he as long as he didn't do that at the museum because then everyone's like, why is this weird guy got his hand in his face? They're like, oh, it's the guy. I recognize the hand. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he's able to do this. And this museum does not have CCTVs, like mostly because it just doesn't exist. But they did have what they boasted to be an impenetrable alarm system. They had infrared and motion detector sensors and things like that. And Cahill made a point of like noting where every single one of these was. So in May of 1986... He decides he's ready. And so he and his crew, uh, he has 10 guys in his crew for this one. They drove out into the woods outside of the house. Uh, and this is like in the dark of night. And they start making their way towards the house. But as they're going, what they're doing is they're taking like sticks with like white plastic bags. And they're sticking them under the ground every so every so often. And this is basically just like leading a trail back like from the vans to the house. And, like, I, I think that's, like, absolutely brilliant as well. And so they did that because you could see the bags 
at night. So they had their escape route like planned brilliantly. You could just like see it and it was it was so low tech and like cost a dollar and like this is like his genius precision. So Cahill and a small group of his uh, his crew, they find a gallery window, they tape it up with masking tape, hit it with a hammer, and the tape prevents like the sound of like shattering glass. So you just hear like this tonk and like the glass falls out, but it's all like in one piece because of the tape and they're able to get in through this window. Pretty much immediately, uh, as soon as they get inside, the alarm goes off. But uh, Cahill and his men like anticipate this and they use this time to use the tape that they brought with them and they cover all of the motion detector sensors and infrared sensors and then they leave and they just make sure that the um, they just make sure that the window is covered by like a really heavy like one of those like thick velvet curtains um, so nobody even like sees that the window's broken but they they like run back they use their escape route that they mapped they hide out at the vans and the police are already on the way. And uh, in addition to the police, like, the, the house is, like, so big that there's, like, a night watchman that, like, lives there. Uh, he's an old retired colonel, and he wakes up because of all this, uh, notifies the police, even though the alarm already did that, looks around, sees that none of the paintings are gone, and then waits at the front door for the, for the guard to arrive. And once they show up, he's like, yeah, I already did a walk around, uh, no signs of a break-in, no, uh, no paintings are missing, must have been a false alarm. And the cops say, thanks for letting us know. And they drive off. And meanwhile, like, Martin and his gang are just watching all of this happen from the woods. So uh, once the police leave, uh, Cahill and everybody, like, see that. And they see the, the lights go off as this, uh, the security guy goes back to bed. Because he was just, like, a live-in security guard. Kind of like a, a lighthouse keeper, but for, for priceless art. And <laughs> so once... Uh, once everything is, like, given the all-clear, they run back, like, following their same trail of plastic bags, go back through the same window, and now they're free to steal 18 paintings because all of the emotion detectors are covered. And so he bypassed this, like, thousand or multi-thousand dollar security system with a $3 roll of scotch tape. And of the paintings that they stole, um, he got a couple of the Goyas, he got, uh, I believe, two or three Gainsboroughs, and he also stole that Vermeer, the lady writing a letter with her maid, which was $30 million. And the total haul of his, uh, of this 18 painting heist that he pulled off was around $60 million. Which, which remains the, the largest single robbery in the history of the Irish state. That's amazing. Mm hmm. And so, because, like, Martin planned all of this out, he had already, like, out in the Irish mountains, he had already dug a hole to hide these paintings in. So that him and his crew just drive off. They realize um, some of the paintings they're able to just leave abandoned in one of, on, in one of the vans because they're like, ah, these aren't as, as good as we thought. And maybe the hole wasn't as big as, as they needed, but he had already had this like hole dug and they bury the paintings and just wait for things to die down. And they wait for, they wait for a while. Like I, I think it was, what was it like a year or two? Yeah. So at this point, I suppose this begins the, the kind of the, the games of, of cat and mouse that would go on because, um, 
the the Gardaí, everyone was shocked the following day. I mean, this was an enormous news story that 60 million worth of paintings had disappeared. So, um, I mean, again, Martin he wanted to, to let the heat die down, I suppose, hoped to be able to, to move the paintings on. So he starts, um, I guess, the, the back channel um, discussions to see where he can move the paintings to. But yeah, we're talking that this this is going on for for quite some time um, in in the background. That's true. And during this time too, like he's not done. Like like this isn't like one of those like oh this is going to be like our big score and we're done. Like he's still committing crimes. Like he at this point like he is like still committing like small crimes. Like uh, one of one of my favorites that he does is he's extorting hot dog, like hot dog cart owners in like the nightclub district of, of Dublin, like outside of like Copper Jacks and stuff like that. He's like shaking them down for money and like shooting them in the legs if they don't pay him. So he just, it's about the crime for him. And when he buries these, uh, cause that was like one of his favorite things is he just like buried stuff. So there's like gold and, uh, and paintings like still hidden in the Irish countryside from him that nobody knows where where they are uh but it's it's almost impossible like to steal these paintings like he thought he thought it was going to be easier to to find a buyer um and he's he's having a hard time and while like police originally thought that it was like an international gang of art thieves that pulled this off just because of the sophistication uh people in the the dublin crime circles like started to talk and they're like oh we we feel like this is definitely martin and so he started getting a lot of heat on him, like during this time. And he's still trying to find a buyer at this. So the pressure's like really starting to add up. And like at this point, the, the guardian kind of surveilling him around the clock. And he has a lot of fun with this. Yes, he does. He does indeed. I mean, this is where it, I suppose things got really interesting at, at this point because. Um, organized crime was not something that existed in Ireland until the 60s and our police force who are called the Garda Siakana which literally translates to Guardians of the Peace they're generally an unarmed force um, the uniformed officers you'd see on the street they're unarmed they do not, do not carry firearms so um, they, they were not used to, to dealing with somebody uh, you know like uh, Martin Cahill in particular and so after the, the robbery, um, as you said, Pete, it took them a, a while to even realize it was him, but then they did. And they set up um, Operation Tango um, to, I guess, place, I, I don't know if you could call it surveillance, because surveillance is usually coverted, but this was out in the open. This was in your face. They, they were following Martin Cahill 24-7, and it was very blatant and... Um, it was it was a, a very costly undertaking, and you know there's certainly people who would question the wisdom of it and and how effective it was. Um, but as you said, Martin himself uh, had some fun with this, and I, I think there's uh, one story in particular that maybe highlights that. Uh, definitely, if it is it the car one, because like one of his favorite things to do was like he would just like go out for like a leisurely drive into the, like the Irish countryside and he knew that like the guard like the police were just like following him uh, and it's like basically a low speed chase at this point but they're just like observing him because he's not actively committing any crimes but he would drive until he was like 
basically out of gas, like in the middle of nowhere. And he knew that like the, the police car following him was also out of gas. And then he would just like pull a gas can out of his trunk, fuel up and leave the, uh, leave the police like stranded in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> which I just think is like so funny and petty. And he would also have his like gang members like go and like hack up all the greens of like the country clubs where like the high ranking police officers like to play golf. <laughs> Yep, he did. That is true. They they dug up the greens. Um, now this became a little bit of a game of tit for tat because um, Martin, one of his interests uh, outside of crime was racing pigeons, and he used to keep racing pigeons at his house. And the in retaliation for uh, some of the games that he had um, been playing with them, the Gardaí actually released a ferret into the um the, the <laughs> kill the racing pigeon and so martin had a collection of prized champion racing pigeons and obviously the ferret killed all of the racing pigeons so i mean it, it was it like the the late 80s early 90s what what a time for crime in ireland on uh, the one hand you have this guy who's leading the cops astray and the other hand you have the cops being equally as petty back to him to get back at him because i don't know how else to, to to deal with him yeah um and i i i think one of the things to, to talk about and you mentioned how he loved crime and you know he wasn't he, he create he commits the biggest robbery in the history of the state but he's not done because during this time one of the things that uh, martin Kyle undertakes and again this was really simple um but brilliant plan is he breaks in to the offices of the director of public prosecutions the dpv which i mean essentially right if we're looking for an american equivalent you're talking about breaking into the offices of the attorney general okay the attorney general of of, of the entirety of the united states and cahill steals some of the m most secretive and important files um, in Irish history, in, on, on some of the biggest cases in, in uh, Irish history. This would be, I guess, the, the equivalent of a gangster breaking in and maybe stealing the case files on the JFK assassination. And Martin Cahill used that to his advantage because he basically said, if uh, whatever he was getting up to, if they got evidence of him, one of the things he did was he he leaned on that. He said, "If you if you're going to arrest me, well, those files are going to end up in the newspaper," um, and that got him out of uh, sticky situations on more than one occasion. That's insane. And one of the other things that he did to like avert, uh, like it just it's almost an admiration at like his moxie for for that, and then. Like in the eighties, he started to realize too. It's like, like science is getting better and forensics are, you know, going to be a thing, and I don't want that to be my undoing. And so, rather than like adapt his like criminal patterns or like wear gloves or, you know, do any of the things that might help you get rid of uh, like forensic evidence, he decides Ireland's only got one forensic scientist, and so he puts a car bomb under his car, <laughs> and uh, it ends up like. It's not that funny because it like ends up like partially disabling the man uh, who like luckily survived. But I just like the the approach that he takes to that instead of like what he realizes the problem and then just tries to like crime his way out of it. 
but that's that's fascinating. Were those uh, were those files ever recovered? Um, so some of them have been, and um, he he did again. That's where he did deals. So he so some of them have been, but he he kept copies of the files. So he he may have returned them, but he uh, he he kept copies, and um, nobody knows exactly where those copies are to to this day. Um, his daughter uh, had a book that that came out that um, not that long ago, and and she referenced uh, though the that those files were were still out there. So um, yeah, I'm sure that that definitely causes some uh, stress and anxiety for for some people uh, to to wonder when, if ever, those files will reappear. Well, that's fascinating. That's that's so crazy. Uh... And so, like, he just, he constantly does stuff like this. He, like, tries to orchestrate a, a kidnapping in 1993 about, um, of one of the um, heads of the National Irish Bank. Um, and so, basically, um, basically with this one, uh, they tried to abduct the CEO of this bank, Jim Lacey, with his wife and four children and then take them to a hiding place, like, in the middle of nowhere. And from there, they were going to try to, like, extort, like, vault information and things like that. And uh, Cahill decided that one of the ways that they should do this and, like, kind of, like, gain sympathy is he takes, like, one of his goons and, like, locks him up with them for two weeks. He's like, oh, I've been here for, for two months already and was trying to, like, really, like, frighten them into, uh, like, basically opening the vaults for them and saying, like, you know, I had my family here. Now it's just me. And they end up... Uh, uh, they end up like letting people go to collect ransom money for for this family, uh, but then they get uh, the, uh, one of his henchmen like ends up getting arrested, and uh, they find out that uh, during his two week capture, uh, he had been trying to draw like child support money, and so the like that's how they arrested one of his goons on that. And like the, I'm not going to get into like crazy detail with that, like just because it's like Rob. Like I guess the Bank of America CEO equivalent uh, in Ireland, like kidnapping him, like isn't even like a top five crime that he commits. Um, yeah, that's that's exactly it, and I think though know, you're beginning to see maybe the um, the threads beginning to fray a little bit at this. I mean, it was an audacious plan, and 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 the first part of it um, they managed to carry out, but you can see at this point um, Operation Tango um, hadn't been successful in provoking Martin Cahill but it had been successful in provoking some of the other gang members and so at this point um, you know Martin isn't he one of the ways I suppose he'd been so successful is he had such a tight-knit gang right he kept it to family and very very close friends and there was only um, you know kind of he, he ruled with an iron fist and there, there was there had been an example of a, a time um, back in the 80s where he thought somebody had stolen a gold bar from uh, him and he crucified the guy on a pool table um, and nail, nailed, uh, put nails through his palms and eventually decided um, it was it was kind of a trial. And he said, no, he didn't do it because nobody could withstand that sort of pain and not confess. So he he inspired this kind of crazy loyalty. But Operation Tango began to, to peel away at, at some of that because 
the the Gardaí were successful in provoking his gang, um, and one of them ended up uh, being jailed for uh, punching a policeman and breaking his jaw, which in turn meant he went to prison. And there were ver- they they captured various others. So by the time we get to kind of ninety three and and that kidnapping, Pete, his gang is not the tight knit unit that it was, and that mistake where the guy gets caught out because he's been trying to get child support. That's not something that would have happened in the 80s. So I think we begin to see, um, you know, it, 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 it's all going a little bit wrong at this point and um, it, it becomes a very slippery slope after this. Absolutely. And one of the things that, that like further slippery, uh, like slips up the slope um, is they still haven't found a, paint, uh, a buyer for these paintings. Um, at this point, like the Guardian, the FBI, and a lot of other people know that it's Cahill, but they can't, like, they haven't seen him with the, uh, with the merchandise and things like that. So you can't really arrest him for it yet because, like, you, it's one of those things where you know, but you don't know. And it's kind of like how, like, a lot of times in the, in the U.S., like, you need to prove a murder, you need to have a body. And they didn't, they didn't have that. They didn't have the art. They didn't have him dead to rights. So they tried to set up some sting operations to to get the, to act as buyers because they know that he's like been unable to sell these. He thought he was going to get millions, and his crew is kind of losing their patience at this point because they thought they were going to get millions. And so they approach him uh, multiple times to to try to set up buys. And right at the last second, like Cal is always able to figure out that this is he's like something doesn't feel right, and he walks away. And then eventually they get a Turkish guy um, who ends up being like part of the Turkish Secret Service to arrange a buy. And they're able to get one of the, one of the Gainsboroughs back. Um, but at this point, like, they know. Like, they kind of ha- have them because they're like, okay, this is one of the, the paintings that was stolen. And that like, starts uh, kind of tightening the screws a little bit more. And eventually... Uh, Cahill's like so desperate that he goes to uh, a Protestant rebel gang, uh, which is, I believe, the same rebel gang that the IRA was fighting uh, in North Ireland. Uh, so this was the, uh, was it the AVU? The, the UVF, the Ulster uh, Volunteer Force, was who uh, Martin Cahill approached um, uh, because I suppose they thought that they would be able to use their connections in Europe um, to to sell the paintings and so Cal um, goes and, and and speaks to to the UVF who are obviously the uh, arch enemies of the IRA uh, in that conflict in in the north so you have two provisional terrorist groups um, now involved uh, you know and and Martin Cal who had a run in. Um, with the IRA back in the 80s and he's now looking to to do a deal with their sworn enemies that's right and so basically from from this point like the 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 wheels are in motion like they this basically gave them the excuse that they were looking for after embarrassing them you know uh, years earlier uh, to go ahead and remove him and so yeah Okay. That's exactly it. And I, I think at this point as well, 
what was happening um, was Martin Cattle, he, he loved crime, but the new guys on the scene, they weren't in love with crime in the same way, and, and they were looking to make money. Uh, they were, you know, they wanted, so they, they, they're, some of the newer guys aren't too enamored with the way Martin wants to go about things. Martin wants to do these big jobs. Martin wants to embarrass the police. Martin wants to do heists. So I think, Pete, it, it's probably worth pointing out at this point that um, the things were changing a, a huge amount for Martin and what he, the, the, the gang he had in the 80s and the way he ruled that gang with an iron fist was no longer the case by the time we get to 93, 94. I mean, Martin had always ensured that his gang was made up of family and very close friends and that he stuck to that as much as possible. Now, there was a time back in the 80s when he thought that one of the gang members had stolen a gold bar and so he actually carried out a trial and the trial consisted of him crucifying this gang member on a pool table. Oh my god! He, he nailed the guy, put nails through his palms, and he then decided um, that the guy was was innocent of stealing the the gold from him because nobody could withstand that sort of pain and not confess. So you have uh, you have two things: you have a gang who are really loyal to him, but you also have a gang leader who rules uh, absolutely and who will slap down anybody who challenges him so we're talking like proper Tony Soprano type stuff here and that that worked really well but after Operation Tango comes into existence the the Gardaí weren't successful in provoking Martin Cahill himself, I think that was one of the aims but they were very successful in provoking um, other gang members, so um, they, they, as we talked about with Martin, they followed all of these gangs. They followed them everywhere. They followed them to the shop. They followed them to the post office. They followed them when they were out with their kids. One of the things that they used to do is they used to search them, and they would search them repeatedly. So uh, a, a gang member might be searched. He'd go, you know, maybe um, the equivalent of two blocks down the street. He'd be searched again. He'd go another two blocks. He'd be searched again. And eventually what happened was um, the, the gang members started to react. So one of them punched a policeman in the jaw, broke his jaw, and he ended up going to jail. And there were other examples of this. They they started to pick up on other petty crimes that some of the gang members were doing. And so they, they ended up in jail. So Martin's gang gets diluted. And the guys that he, he wanted to work with, he maybe no longer could. And the outlook was really changing at that point. Martin, as we discussed, loved crime. Right, and he wanted to do jobs, big jobs that would embarrass the Gardaí, and that were elaborate, that got press attention. The the newer guys, they didn't want that. They wanted to make money, and they wanted to make quick money, and they preferred maybe if they could stay out of the the, the limelight. And I think it's at this point that we begin to see, you know, um, the everybody, you know, a, co- a coalescing. Um, uh, of minds amongst um, the the gang members who think maybe you know Martin's methods are old school and this isn't what we want. The Gardaí who are really frustrated by their inability to nail Martin Cahill and all of the embarrassment that he has caused them, and the provisional IRA 
who are now after he has uh, you know done a deal with their sworn enemies they you know this is their their cue they they have an old score to settle and i they're ready to to take the advantage of that opportunity oh absolutely and and they do on uh on 18 August 1994, they uh, they set up a uh, they actually took like road guard vests or like construction worker vests and like set up at an intersection for two days where they knew uh, Kyle was driving in and out of it was basically like on his way like into town. He was he he, he was on his way to back to the video shop right when people used to rent videos. Oh yeah, and he was he he was actually returning uh, a copy of. Delta Force Three: The Killing Game, which is like I, I ended up watching that like after you told me about it, like and it's got like one of the like best endings ever, like because it's just like that perfect like eighties like cheesy action movie camp where like somebody's about to you know blow up something and the two guys like who have been like fighting with each other and like trying to show off uh, or show up one another like the whole movie uh, like they pull off the shot and then they like have like a nice like quippy line and they become friends and it's like it's beautiful well it 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 it, it had it may have an interesting ending but it was also the the ending for martin cahill because they they had they had done a a, a job at, at getting him when the the police had never been able to and so um as he stopped at that intersection the IRA gun member um, just walked up, uh, by all accounts from eyewitness testimony, walked calmly up to the car, pointed uh, a Magnum revolver, and repeatedly shot Martin Cahill in the face and upper torso. Um, I mean, it was an, you know, a kind of a, a perfect execution, if you will. And the guy jumps on a motorbike and disappears. He should have rented The Godfather. Like, you would have known how to get out of that. Because uh, that's basically how Sonny dies at the toll booth. But yeah, that was that was the end of uh, Martin Cahill. And, uh, like, one of the, the police detectives that was, like, investigating him, like, ended up being the first on the scene and, like, sees him, like, slumped over the steering wheel and, like, checks him for a heartbeat. And he's like, you know, this is, like, he's like, it was, like, weird, like, seeing my nemesis. And also, like, seeing his face, because, like, even though they would, like, they would talk sometimes, and, like, he knew who he was, and he knew what he looked like, like, Cahill would always cover his face, like, when they were talking. And so, like, there was that. And then uh, one of my favorite things is, like, after the after the funeral service and stuff like that, like, you saw a bunch of cops, like, go to the funeral, like, mostly because this guy just dominated, you know, a decade of their, their careers. And, like, a couple of them got interviewed, and they're like, well, it was a lovely service. <laughs> Which might be the most Irish response to anything ever. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but that that was I mean, the thing about it is is that it was it was only after um that that Martin Cattle was killed that his face was revealed. So it was um the the weekend after his murder that finally uh, one of the newspapers published the first full page front picture of Martin Cattle without a mask. And that newspaper um, sold out within hours. Um, people wanted to see who, who this guy was. And the other thing about uh, Martin Cahill is that no one was ever charged um, with the crime of, of, of killing him. Um, yeah, I can't know. imagine they looked very hard. 
uh, I think yeah, I think that possibly tells its its own story there because the 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 provisional IRA came out and it, you know claimed responsibility for the assassination, and um, you know so so essentially <laughs> the, the, the there's no who done it in 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 this instance. No, that's that's pretty that's pretty wild, and he still has like maybe millions of dollars because some of the paintings were were recovered like eventually through through detective work like the the vermeer was found in the back of a van uh not too not too long after his death but and actually i believe it got stolen again uh after after cahill because that painting has been stolen four times but there's still two of the paintings that have never been recovered that are still presumably buried somewhere in the Irish countryside, along with gold and diamonds and things like that from the um, from the jewelry heist, and probably like all the documents, like because that was just like this thing he like loved burying things. Um, yeah, that was, and we'll 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 never we'll never know. I mean, um, he he took he took that with him and. Uh, but he, he left a, quite a quite a legacy and a and a history. Um, but I, I think probably what's uh, what's followed on from Martin Cahill uh, has been very different. Um, the the gangs in Ireland today are, are very different and, and carry out very um, very different crimes to uh, to what Martin Cahill did. That's super interesting. So, what are the? Uh, do you know like what some of the the more common crimes are now? Like, is it more like uh, extortion type stuff, or? I suppose, like everywhere, it's it's probably the the, the drugs trade that has fueled um, most uh, most of it right now, and and we're seeing a, probably an increase in, in the in the level of, of violence. Um, so it's it's not really the the big sort of um, high profile jobs that martin cahill used to carry out it's it's how do we how do people make money on the on the black market okay that's super interesting that is the story of uh martin cahill colin thank you so much for being on this uh if people want to find your podcast or follow you on uh on the social medias uh how can they find you um, the podcast is Adventures in Advising. I also am one of the founding members of the Broncos Europe group. So if we have anyone listening to this who's a fan of the Denver Broncos, we are the largest Broncos fan group outside of North America. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Cullum from Cork. And love to hear from people, love to interact with people. And I would say also, if people have found this interesting, check out, there's a movie called The General, which features Brendan Gleeson. It's really, really good. And it does a really good job uh, of capturing uh, Martin Cahill. And I, I would definitely say, um, you know, that it, that would be a couple of hours well, well spent for people to check out The General. Absolutely. I would highly recommend that movie and not Ordinary Decent Criminal, which stars Kevin Spacey as uh, Martin Cahill uh, and is, by all accounts, an awful film. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, the interesting thing is that Cahill has had, there are at least four books on this guy. There are at least three movies that I'm aware of. 
So um, he he certainly has um, a whole host of interest in him, even still today. But the general, I think, stands head and shoulders above the others. And Brendan Gleeson, it's kind of his breakout performance, I suppose. And he does a really, really good job of, of capturing Martin Cahill. Awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I, uh, I'll definitely check that one out. Uh, this has been I Can Steal That. Thank you guys so much. If you're a fan of the podcast, uh, please let us know. Please reach out to us on social media. We are on all the platforms at I Can Steal That. You can email us at I Can Steal That at gmail.com. I've got a brand new website, I Can Steal That.com. Check that out. And also, like, feel free to just email me or message me. Like, I'm Pete Stegmeyer. Um, and if you're a big fan, like, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. It does help us a lot. And we will be back next week with a new episode. Uh, but until then, just thank you so much for doing this, Colin. It was great catching up. Oh, this has been a whole host of fun. Thank you, Pete. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.